Hello, uh, my name is Stefan Zerman. I work with uh, Dr. Fishman here at uh, Hopkins. Um, I'm an associate professor here and uh, do a lot of cardiac imaging. And today we're going to talk about uh, the use of CT in TAVR. Um, so here's an outline of uh, what we're going to review today. First, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, background issues related to TAVR. What is TAVR exactly and why should you care? Uh, then we're going to talk about how CT plays into TAVR. Um, review some protocols and analysis, and then finally we'll go over some post-TAVR findings and complications. So first, what is TAVR? Uh, why should you care? Um, so first, uh, a little background about aortic stenosis. So aortic stenosis is a disease that affects 5% of the population, so it's quite common. And in particular, it's very common amongst the elderly. Um, and it turns out that um, aortic stenosis is actually a quite deadly disease. Um, once patients are symptomatic, death uh, happens in, uh, or people die, in, uh, over 50% of people die uh, at two years. So this is a prognosis that's worse than many of the cancers that we see. Um, the traditional treatment is surgical valve replacement, and that had been sort of the mainstay of treatment for many years. Um, problem is, though, that this is, again, a disease of the elderly population, and so this is a population with lots of comorbidities, frailty, etc. And so these patients often are very high uh, risk for surgery. Um, and so some patients, a good number of these patients, actually cannot have the surgery because they are too high risk. Um, and this is where TAVR comes in. And TAVR stands for transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Um, and it's a great technique for replacing aortic valves in patients who are really too sick for surgery. Um, so TAVR came onto the scene um, you know, quite a while ago now. Uh, this chart we see here uh, uh, from the literature actually uh, goes back to 2012. Um, and you can see that over the years, TAVR has been growing and growing and growing. And um, this growth is expected to continue for quite a while. So we as radiologists uh, should anticipate that we're going to start seeing a lot of TAVR if you're not doing it already. Um, and that, that the number of cases we see is just going to increase over time. And this makes sense. Who, who in their right mind would want to have uh, open heart surgery if they can avoid it? Certainly the option of having a transcatheter valve uh, where your only, uh, uh, only wound really is a wound in the groin from the, the sheath that was placed uh, versus a complete you know, sternotomy. Uh, there's, there's obviously a no-brainer kind of situation going on there. Um, so, so what is the story behind TAVR and why this uh, uh, explosive growth? Well, uh, what's happened with TAVR is basically um, the, the valve uh, itself um, has gone through a series of uh, trials, uh, basically increasing um, uh, the number of eligible patients over time. So initially, the transcatheteric valve uh, was um, uh, evaluated in patients who were too sick to have any surgery at all. Um, and that's the top of this chart here. Those were considered the extreme risk patients. And so in those patients, the risk of death for surgery was so high that they said they, they cannot get surgery, they cannot have their valve uh, surgically repaired. And the trial was constructed such that patients would either, would be randomized to either medical therapy or uh, transcatheter aortic valve. And, and sure enough, the transcatheter aortic valve performed quite well and, and better than medical therapy. Um, following those extreme risk trials uh, were high risk trials. So in this case, these are patients who could have surgery, but the surgery itself had quite a high risk of morbidity and mortality. Um, and this would, again, patients were randomized to either high risk surgery or uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement. 
and again, the the valve performed quite well in in that scenario. Um, and now, uh, as we move forward, we're getting into trials that have uh, moved down to groups that are now at intermediate risk, um, so uh, sort of a medium risk for surgery. Um, and currently, uh, we have ongoing trials now in low-risk populations. So intermediate risk data actually is available and um, shows that, uh, again, the, the valve performs well in this group uh, versus when compared to surgery. And so now the next group will be the lowest group. And so this basically the story that's being told here is this story of uh, expanding indications and uh, the eligible patient population is growing and growing over time. So right now in the United States, there are two uh, valves available. <clears throat> there are several companies that are working on new valves, and, and uh, we would expect that over the coming years, we're going to see additional valves available from other vendors. But right now, we're limited to two. Uh, the first is uh, the core valve, which is uh, um, from Medtronic. Um, and there have been a couple different uh, iterations of this, um, uh, but the basic design has been the same. And that's this shape that you see here. It kind of has this flared, um, more superior part that sits inside the ascending aorta. Um, and then there's a uh, prosthetic uh, valve mounted on the more inferior part of the device. You can see the device sits in the region of the aortic annulus. And the arrow on the right-hand image actually is pointing to a chunk of calcium that is part of the native aortic valve that has been pushed aside by this uh, device. And that's how these devices work. They basically sit in the native aortic valve position and push the native aortic valve leaflets out of the way um, and provide a, a new valve uh, uh, instead. This is the other uh, type of valve that you're going to see in the United States. Uh, this is called the uh, Sapien valve uh, from Edwards. And again, this has gone through a few different uh, iterations. Um, the uh, sheath size actually has gradually decreased over time, and they've added a skirt, um, which I'll talk about later. Um, and But the basic design here, it's a, it's a lower profile device, um, sits at the level of the aortic annulus, and um, has, a, again, a prosthetic valve in the middle. Um, so the important thing here is it's centered on the aortic annulus. Um, and unlike the core valve, the, uh, the device itself does not go above the level of the um, coronary ostea. actually sits just below. Okay, so next we're going to move on to the role of CT in TAVR. So it turns out that TAVR really is um, critical now for pre, uh, excuse me, CT is now critical for preoperative planning in TAVR patients. Um, so CT really has two roles uh, in this setting. One is to actually uh, evaluate the aortic valve structure itself to determine the size of the device. Um, uh, that's needed uh, to use. And then the other is to look at the potential uh, avenues for vascular access. So uh, to accomplish this, the standard TAVR CT scan includes um, uh, cardiac-gated imaging to look at the aortic valve structure itself. Um, and then this is followed by a CT angiogram of the chest, abdomen, pelvis to look at the uh, vascular supply and, and to determine what's the best way to, uh, best place to place the catheters. So how did CT become so important in TAVR? Um, well, it turns out that um, CT, uh, the initial trials, I should back up, the initial trials used echocardiography for valve sizing. And it turned out that using echocardiography for valve sizing resulted in a problem called paravalvular leak. And basically what that means is that the 
device itself is a little too small for the aortic annulus and there's a gap between the edges of the device and the aortic annulus and that gap uh, allows leakage of blood around the device um, basically aortic regurgitation um, so it's known as paravalvular leak or paravalvular regurgitation um, and so echo base sizing um, resulted in uh, some degree of paravalvular regurgitation and more recent uh, data has shown that if you use CT to do device sizing, then you reduce the amount of paravalvular leak. Um, and paravalvular leak ends up being really important for patient outcomes. Those with paravalvular leak do a lot worse than those without, twofold higher risk of mortality in one meta-analysis. So it's certainly very important to avoid this problem, and uh, CT does a better job of avoiding it than echo, hence now CT has really become standard of care for pre-TAVR evaluation. So just another slide about paravalvular leak here. This is the concept, sort of a visual uh, uh, drawing, of a, uh, excuse me, a visual um, depiction. In this figure, you see the arrow is really blood that's leaking around the device. Um, so pretty simple. Um, I had mentioned some newer iterations of these devices have a skirt, um, and so they have additional material on the outside of the device, which is basically um, designed to reduce the amount of paravalvular leak um, and increase or improve the seal between the valve and the annulus. So why does CT do a better job than echocardiography? Well, here's um, here are a couple figures from the literature which kind of uh, demonstrate this. What happens is the way the valve uh, annulus was measured uh, on echocardiography is from this view called a parasternal long axis view, and a single uh, uh, single plane measurement was performed, and that that single plane um, diameter uh, was actually uh, extrapolated out to uh, their circumference of a circle based on that diameter. And it turns out that when you look on three-dimensional CT uh, scans, you can map out the actual diameter that was measured by echo and it turns out that the numbers they got were just a little bit short of reality so um, this yellow bar shows you the true diameter the true long axis diameter of this aortic annulus whereas the um, measured diameter by echo is depicted in the uh, white uh, bar there with the little red arrows so basically there's a systematic underestimation of um, the actual true annular size with echocardiography, which again leads to the undersizing, which leads to the paravalvular regurgitation. What are some other things that we do with CT uh, when we do um, TAVR assessment? So not only do we do measurements and try and find the ideal vascular access, we also try to identify high-risk features that may preclude surgical valve replacement. Um, the concept here is that sometimes when the patients come into the clinic, the cardiologists don't necessarily know which way they're going to go. Are they going to go to surgical valve replacement or are they going to go to uh, transcatheter aortic valve? And we can see some features on CT that may tip the balance in one direction or the other. Um, in particular, we can see CT features which basically tip the balance away from surgery. Um, one of those would be extensive calcification of the aorta or porcelain aorta, which is sometimes called. This is really just the whole aorta is calcified and what happens is the to do um, cardiopulmonary bypass the surgeon needs to clamp the aorta itself and also make some holes in the aorta for his uh, for various um, catheters and things like that um, if you have a lot of calcification that becomes very difficult and dangerous so um, that pushes one away from surgery um, the other feature would be cabbage vessels in the substernal position so these would be people who've had 
um, prior uh, coronary artery bypass graft placement, and their vessels for the actual graft are sitting just below the sternum, and so when you go do a redo sternotomy to replace the valve, those are uh, at risk for being injured. Um, and we already talked about how we use the vascular, uh, the CT angiogram to assess the ideal location for uh, placement of our, uh, of, or for obtaining vascular access. Um, generally, the um, cardiologists and surgeons who are performing the TAVR procedure, they want to use the iliofemoral access route. Um, far and away, that's the most popular. But in a pinch, if, if there's a lot of stenosis or trouble, there's trouble with the um, iliac vessels, then they can go to subclavian access. Um, and then uh, as another sort of last-ditch last resort, they can either do direct aortic, which they actually go between the ribs and puncture the ascending aorta, or transapical, which is really the last sort of the last choice, which means they go also between the ribs and actually go directly through the apex of the heart. Um, not surprisingly, patients who have had transapical, which was much more common in the early phases of the sort of the TAVR evaluation, those patients who undergo transapical or have transapical access do worse in general than those who do not. Um, you know, basically you're creating a hole in the heart which has to be sutured up and, and there's some, some negative effects from that downstream. Okay, so um, next we're going to talk about CT protocols and analysis. So how do you do it when you're at the scanner? Um, these are the typical components of a TAVR CT examination. Uh, we talked about the cardiac gated imaging to really look at the aortic valve structure and the CT angiogram of the chest, abdomen, pelvis. Um, the calcium scoring is, a, is an optional uh, uh, piece of the exam. Some places do this routinely. Um, I have some colleagues where they always get calcium score because they want to look at the degree of calcification of the aortic valve. Um, in some cases, they may be on the fence as to whether or not they think this patient's valve disease is severe enough to warrant replacement. And if they see a lot of calcium on the valve, then that might push them to actually go ahead with the procedure. Um, there is some data looking at the amount of calcium and the risk of regurgitation, basically showing that the more calcium you have, the more likely you are to have regurgitation. Um, so some places like to get the calcium scoring ahead of time. We do not actually at Hopkins, um, but that's really up to your, uh, your own personal preference. The other two components certainly are critical. Um, what are the concepts? So when we put together the TAVR protocol, what do we want? Ideally, you want to image fast at a high resolution. You want to obtain multiple cardiac phases, and you want to optimize your images for post-processing. So um, this uh, is a typical protocol for a wide detector uh, scanner, 128 slice or greater. We're going to get, we're going to use a big IV, and we want to inject quickly, five to seven cc's a second. We usually use a, a fair amount of contrast because we have to do both a cardiac imaging and then also follow with a CT angiogram. So we generally give 120 cc's. If you do have renal insufficiency, you can, you can bring that down a little bit. Um, a saline flush is critical, and I'll show you why. Um, usually use, we use a bolus tracker for triggering and then perform the um, cardiac scan immediately followed by the CTA of the chest, abdomen, pelvis. 64 slice scanners, um, that's where you get into a little bit more of a dicey situation, and, and this boils down a little bit to uh, personal preference. Um, these scanners are a bit slower, so doing the cardiac scan immediately followed by CT angiogram, you may not be moving fast enough to catch a 
catch the um, entire uh, uh, bolus for the CT angiogram and may get poor CTA images. So a different approach that um, people uh, have reported and try uh, is, is splitting the bolus, um, doing initially uh, injection of 80 cc's for the cardiac CT, and then doing another injection, um, you know, moving the patient and doing another injection and doing your CT angiogram of the abdomen and pelvis. So you can do a gated of the entire chest and then CTA abdomen pelvis, or you could do just a gated focused in on the aorta itself, and then a CTA of chest abdomen pelvis. It's kind of, again, um, no, nothing is um, set in stone there. It's really up to personal preference. Here's a slide showing the importance of saline flush. So when we first started using TAVR, we did not routinely use the saline flush, and then we quickly moved away from that and started using it because of the, what you see here. Uh, again, if you remember, sometimes the subclavian arteries become important as potential access routes. And if you have a streak from contrast in your subclavian vein, it makes your analysis of the subclavian artery quite difficult. So uh, having the flush really helps with subclavian artery analysis. Here's some acquisition parameters um, that are available on the website, CT is us. Um, I won't belabor this, but these are um, uh, provided for the um, Siemens uh, scanner here. Um, and here's some other uh, uh, technical parameters. This is for the uh, non-gated part of the CTA. Um, in general, um, the, we use care dose in these cases, um, but we generally um, make sure we use dose that's sufficient to get good quality images. These are older patients, so radiation dose is not as high a concern as, as in other uh, settings. What about your recons? We want to do thin slices, um, 0.75 millimeter thick slices with some overlap. Um, you want to, for your cardiac, uh, for your annulus measurements, you want to make sure your field of view is smaller and magnified up to the heart so you can get really good evaluation of the annulus itself. We create systolic, diastolic, and multiphase recons. Um, and then um, for the runoff, um, we always make sure to create iter use iterative reconstruction. This really helps um, limit blooming artifact from calcium. And I'll just show an example here. This is. Um, Iterative reconstruction on the left and filtered back projection on the right. The letters and numbers are specific to Siemens, but all the manufacturers certainly have these uh, options available. I've just found that over time, it's much easier to measure the actual vessel diameters on the iterative reconstruction uh, compared to the filtered back projection because you just have a lot sharper vessel wall. So create, uh, measuring those vessel diameters, which is a requirement uh, pre-TAVR, is just a lot easier in that setting. Okay, one last note um, before we take a quick break. Um, patients with poor renal function, this comes up a lot. So these are older patients with comorbidities. And so it's not uncommon to have people with reduced renal function. I say that, I would say that um, we're actually fairly liberal with giving contrast and um, certainly anybody up with to a creatinine of two, um, we feel pretty comfortable using contrast. We really haven't had any issues. But if patients um, have really low GFR, less than 30, then you, we can, um, you can do low-dose protocols. There's a lot of this in the literature um, out there. Um, our own personal experience, we've taken um, 40 cc's of saline and mixed it with, or 40 cc's of contrast, mixed it with 20 cc's of saline, um, and then performed the cardiac CT angio. That works pretty well. Um, chasing that with the CTA of the chest, and pelvis, that's a little more problematic. Um, but uh, you know, usually you get enough information that you can tell which would be a good access route. It's not going to be perfect, um, but it's usually good enough. Um, the other possibility we've done as well is you can do a non-contrast MRI of the chest with uh, you know gated images through the uh, through the valve, 
um, and then a non-contrast CT abdomen pelvis that basically allows you to get an external look at the, the iliac diameters and how much calcium and disease there is. Clearly, you could be missing some stenosis from non-calcified plaque because you don't have contrast on board, but <clears throat> oftentimes that's good enough in these patients. So I think this is a good spot to take a, a little break, maybe stop and grab some coffee, and then we'll be back for part two uh, and um, uh, a little bit later.